Our guest for this show is an accountant specialising in property tax, author of five books and business and tax, owner of five different businesses and host of the Wealth Made Simple podcast. In 2017, he was first elected as Labour councillor and since 2018 has led the Labour group of Peterborough councillors. Councillor Shaz Nawaz, welcome to the Politics of Peterborough. Absolute pleasure and thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. So with all of that that I mentioned in the introduction, where do you find the time to actually be a councillor? It's probably the most obvious and common question I get asked. Uh, And I guess really it's when you want to do something, you find the time. Uh, And I'm sure you've heard that well-known saying, if you want to get something done, give it to a busy person because they'll get it done. Uh, So over time, I've kind of worked on time management, self-management, kind of creating blocks of time to do certain things. Uh, So sometimes it can be difficult and you have to juggle quite a few different balls, spin quite a few different plates. But it's kind of having a strategy of having people you can delegate to, work with, uh, and over time you just get better at it. So you think your kind of business experience has, has been particularly helpful in the political sector? Oh, enormously, absolutely. Uh, both in, well, not both, in many different ways. Uh, for myself, uh, in terms of personal management, delegation, leadership, uh, that side, uh, in terms of finances, understanding the council finances, uh, it's been very important. Uh, and also in terms of communication, talking to residents, networking, as I call it. Uh, so uh, business has been a huge help. Um, how did you actually get into politics? What, what, made, what made that decision for you to actually to, to go for it? So I've always been in Peterborough. And since about 2004, uh, I've had different people encouraging me and asking me to get involved. Uh, and for one reason or another, uh, it was always next time, tomorrow, next week, as you know, you just kind of, with the best intention and uh, will in the world, you think you'll get around to it one day. Uh, and after about 12 years of people asking me time and again, I thought I'd try my hand and give it a go because of, uh, Peter was a, a great place. Uh, and I thought if I want to make a difference, uh, then one way of doing it is to be in the council and represent the people uh, who I care about. Did anything take you by surprise after you were first elected as a councillor? One of the first, in fact, in fact the first thing, uh, one of my colleagues at the time, a guy called Richard Ferris, who was a councillor in Park Ward, when I became a councillor that night, uh, he said, good luck, Shaz, this will take over your life. And I thought he was joking. Uh, but he was anything but joking. Uh, and uh, the surprise is how much time it actually takes if you do it properly. So I could spend my entire week, and I don't mean 40 hours, by the way, or 37 and a half hours, I mean 60, 70 hours a week working on council stuff uh, if I wanted to. Uh, so the amount of time that it takes uh, was a huge surprise because generally speaking, people say, you become a councillor, uh, some some will say to you it takes you 10 hours a week, some will say it takes 25 hours a week, and I'm sure some people spend that much time, uh, but for me, if I do something, I want to do it properly. Uh, if I'm going into, into a meeting, uh, I'll make sure I read all uh, the papers in detail, uh, and for some of the meetings, if you have a look on, online, or, or all the meeting agendas are there, you've got anywhere from 150 to 250 pages. Uh, so to read those takes quite a while. 
so if you're really interested, uh, you need to have the time. So that that was a, a big surprise. Everything else, uh, I guess, I, I've taken to uh, because I was interested in it. Because it's it's not a paid position per se, is it? You, you get an allowance for the year, but it's not like, as you say, it's not your full-time job. It's not something that actually you could give everything else up and, and support yourself on. I couldn't. Maybe yeah, some people possibly can. Uh, I'll talk in round numbers here. I think the allowance uh, for a counsellor is something like 10,000 and a few pounds. So let's call it 10,500 pounds. Then as a group leader... I think I get another fifteen hundred to two thousand uh, pounds. So that's the the allowance that we get. Uh, that by no means covers the time that I spend. But of course, I've not gone into this for the money. Uh, but it it doesn't in any way compensate uh, at all. And I don't think it ever could uh, with everything that I do in business. Uh, but uh, I do it because I care about people. I care about the people that uh, have selected and elected me uh, and that's what keeps me going. Now your business moniker is the Profits Wizard uh, and you state that quote my business is to help your business to make a lot more money more often more easily and pay a lot less tax. Yes. In 2021 you were criticised by the Peterborough Tenants Union because you were instructing businesses on how to maximise their profits from Mm -hmm. uh, property. Are these aims compatible with a labour view of society? I think so absolutely. Uh, so the Labour Party believes in equality, fairness, justice, uh, and we must be, I believe, the party of aspiration. Uh, so you've got kind of two schools of thought, if I may call it that. One is push everybody down. I don't think that that works for anybody or everybody. Uh, the other one is to pull everybody up. Okay, uh, and if you do that, that that gives people choice. So generally speaking. When somebody wants to improve their business, uh, they, and let's say they increase their turnover, increase their profits, what's one of the first things they're going to do? They'll have to employ more people. So they're creating more jobs, so less people are going to be uh, unemployed. Uh, secondly, those people are going to pay tax. Thirdly, those people are going to spend money locally. Fourthly, the person who takes that person on, or the business, uh, will then grow and expand. Uh, that means they'll pay more tax. So you create a circular economy by doing so. The pay less tax, and this is something I get asked about a lot, because people say, oh, you're you're an accountant, you're saying to people pay less tax, and labour is about paying more more taxes. And the answer to that really is, a lot of people in business, especially the kind of clients that I look after, who are in the small business sector, and you've got best part of 5.2 million uh, entrepreneurs or small business owners, don't actually know what they can claim as an expense. So I'll give you two or three examples for the benefit of, of your listeners. Uh, you may have somebody who's working from home, especially over, over the last two years, and they don't know you can claim use of home as office because they just don't know. So if I advise them that they could claim that, and if they qualify, they claim it, they pay less tax. We have somebody else who's been working for, let's say, five, 10 years, is making a decent amount of profit, hasn't thought about what's going to happen when they retire. Now, generally speaking, if you work for somebody, you'll have an opportunity to enter into a pension arrangement. Self-employed people have that opportunity, but they have to choose to do so. Most self-employed people don't actually know how to go about it. So even though I'm not a financial advisor, I'll talk about the tax benefits of investing in a pension. 
uh, and that helps them pay less tax. And I'll give you a final example, uh, it, which is linked to the business growth side. So if somebody wants to expand their business, they take on more people paying more tax. At the same time, they're into investing their business. So plant machinery equipment, when they buy all those items, they can claim something called capital allowances, uh, which means they can accelerate how quickly they claim those allowances, thereby paying less tax. So that's where the pay less tax comes into it. And I always tell people, uh, I would be surprised if you go up and down the country and you find any accountant who says, come, come and join my books and I'll help you pay more tax. And if they do, by the way, I wonder how many clients they actually have. Yeah, they're not going to last yeah. very so, long. So it's kind of language used within the accountancy world to say, we'll help you become more tax efficient. But if you say, we'll become, help you become more tax efficient, that doesn't always resonate with people. So the language used well before my time is, we'll help you pay less tax. And what that means is we'll, we'll ensure you claim all the allowances uh, and tax reliefs that you may be able to qualify for. Now, you said earlier that um, you grew up uh, in Peterborough. In the past, uh, Peterborough has suffered uh, from clashes between people of different ethnic backgrounds. Did you suffer racism as you grew up? And do you think things are getting better or worse in the city? I think if you ask any black or Asian person or anybody from an ethnic minority who at least is visibly different, so the colour of their skin, uh, I think we'd be hard-pressed to find somebody who hasn't encountered racism. Uh, some of it's overt, okay? Uh, some of it's covert. Uh, but I, I have, but I don't think too much about that uh, because sometimes it's easy for someone like me, for example, to call you racist uh, just because I don't get my way. And it's not because you're racist, it's because you have a certain way of doing things uh, and just because that doesn't fit in line with mine, I may feel you're being racist because I've been subjected to that behaviour in the past. So it's about understanding people. Uh, but I can, I think, quite comfortably and safely say in the last 15, 20 years, I don't think I've been a victim of racism. Uh, and that partly is down to the fact that I've, I've made an effort to connect with people, talk to people, They've educated me about how they work. I've educated them about how I work. Uh, and I've also uh, got to understand that different people work differently. So you have to first seek to understand somebody before they get to understand you. Uh, and to answer the second part of your question, are things getting better? It depends uh, which day of the week you ask me that question on. But generally speaking, I think it's fair to say uh, Peterborough is an inclusive place. Uh, most communities get on reasonably well. Uh, we can always be better, uh, but I think uh, Peterborough is a great example across the country where different communities work together on a regular basis. Even if you look at the council uh, in terms of ethnic uh, background and makeup, uh, it's reasonably diverse. Yet if you go back, I'd say, let's say pre-2016, we probably had I don't know, maybe four or five, if that, black and Asian councillors. Now, uh, top of my head, I think you'd probably, you've got between uh, 15 to 18 black and Asian uh, councillors. So uh, the council now looks a bit more like the people it seeks to represent. So just a final one on this. Recently, Peter MP Paul Bristow called upon you to apologise after suggesting that you used a racist trope towards uh, conservative councillors. Do you want to respond to that at all? I think he misunderstands, okay? Uh, so 
if I refer to somebody from the same ethnic background, i.e. somebody from the Pakistani, Kashmiri, Indian subcontinent background, that's not me being racist, that's me pointing something out. Uh, if I say to somebody uh, who is possibly, let's say, black, white, okay, Chinese, for example, and I use a particular slur, that would be racist. But if I'm talking to somebody from my own community, that is not racism. That's me saying, look in the mirror, uh, I think what you're doing is wrong. Uh, so I think Paul's got it wrong there. Uh, so I hadn't planned on discussing national politics, but obviously with the events of the last week, uh, I kind of feel we need to touch on it. Um, what are your thoughts on the resignation of Boris Johnson? I think it took way too long. So Boris should have read the room better. Uh, he should have understood the mood of the country. Uh, and I guess he is where he is because he failed to do those things time and again. Uh, and I'm surprised and shocked it took the Conservative... MPs so long and they tolerated Boris for, for such time because generally speaking I think it's fair to say they are pretty ruthless so if they aren't happy with the leader or if the leader isn't doing too well uh, I don't think most of them have too much of an issue in replacing the leader uh, unlike some of the other mainstream parties uh, so the time was up uh, and I'm surprised he lasted so long because when Boris actually became Prime Minister I had a conversation with, with a couple of councillor colleagues and I said, give him 18 months, he'd be out. Uh, he's lasted more than 18 months, uh, but uh, I think we need to move on. Uh, and it's fair to say uh, that those MPs who stood against Boris did the right thing. Do you think he should be carrying on as caretaker? Personally, I don't, uh, because the country's lost faith in him. His own party, to some extent, have lost faith in him. Uh, I think he should have just uh, stepped down and said somebody else take over uh, and have a fresh start. But now we've got him for another best part of I think two or three months, uh, which isn't is we're in no person's land uh, basically. Uh, I don't think Boris is going to be doing much during this time. Uh, and in fact, it's interesting to see that he's uh, given some new cabinet posts to some of his friends. Uh, who'd be in that post, say, for two or three months, uh, unless they support the right person who then becomes leader, and then, then they might might carry on. But once they stop being cabinet members, I think the severance pay, uh, if that's the right word to use, is six months. So they'll get best part of £50,000 each for being cabinet members for three months, on top of whatever they get as an additional allowance for those three months. So Boris, uh, as always, is... Uh, looking after his mates. I mean, I think I read somewhere that it was 25% of an annual salary. So I think um, for the lower members, it was around 16,500, pounds for the year. But there was the suggestion that the education secretary who was in post for 36 hours would still be getting it, but that she would be uh, giving it to charity. So, yeah, say about that but, what you like, I suppose. Yes, but I think, uh, is it is it going to be 25% of their... MP salary because they get an, an additional allowance. I think it's the additional allowance, okay. I believe, is what I read. Whether that's accurate, I'm not sure. Um, which of the announced candidates would worry you most going into the next election? Well, I'm having, I think that there's so far there's nine who've announced uh, or 
share their interest. I don't think any one of them troubles me whatsoever uh, because the way that our party is shaping up now and the way we're gearing up for the next general election, uh, it's clear that we're connecting better with the public. Uh, and obviously, as we get closer to the election, uh, the party will be sharing its manifesto and, and policies. And I think it'll be clear to people uh, that Keir Starmer and the Labour Party are the party that actually understands people's problems, challenges with the cost of living crisis and everything else that people are going through. So I think no, no matter who is leader, I don't think we as a party, as in the Labour Party, have anything to worry about. Uh, from all the candidates, because you've asked me a direct question, uh, I think Nadim Zahawi comes across well. Uh, so uh, I think he might do well. Uh, whether he has the, the support of his colleagues, I don't know. Uh, Rishi Sunak, uh, who's done pretty well very, very quickly. But I think some of the things in the past with his wife's tax affairs may come back to bite. Uh, and then Penny and her surname uh, escapes my mind right now. Uh, I think she looks pretty decent uh, and she might do well as well. Uh, but interestingly, they're all speaking to the membership, which obviously they would do, and talking about cutting taxes when they supported Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson to increase taxes, both national insurance and corporation tax rates. Uh, so are they just speaking to, to the membership to get selected and elected, or do they actually mean it? Time will tell. So just a quick one-word answer. Is Keir Starmer the right leader for Labour into the next election? Absolutely. So in 2022, the Labour Party gained its biggest vote share in Peterborough since 1999. However, Peterborough has had a Conservative-controlled or headed council since then, and we've had a fairly increasingly unpopular National Conservative government. Do you see May's results as a success or a failure? I think if we look at the vote bank, the Conservatives bank an extra 1,000 votes compared to us. So I think they got best part of 14,500, we got 13,500. So... The vote bank has increased. What we need to do as a party is to focus and channel that a bit more into the target seats so we gain the extra vote. So there's probably, I don't know, three to five uh, seats that we lose by, I'd I'd say, up to 300 votes. Some are 30, 40 votes, some are less than 100. So it's channeling there as opposed to us focusing on uh, getting a bigger vote share uh, in the wards where we have three Labour councillors or two strong Labour councillors. So it's just about repositioning how we work. Uh, And I think the question that you asked really demonstrates that the problem we have in politics and with politics uh, is that one party can have 14,500 votes and they have 27 or 28 councillors. The second party uh, or the second largest party has a thousand less votes and has... 17 councillors uh, and that is not representative of what people want so I think the conversation uh, should be focused around at some point how do we change the system so it better reflects what people want and I think first past the post isn't the right way to go about it. So you're advocating more of a proportional representation? I think think that would be a better way of doing it. Was it a mistake to put a candidate up in Ravensthorpe against Ed Murphy? Ed Murphy left the Labour Party Uh, And as a party, we always feel uh, that uh, wherever possible, uh, every single ward 
and the ward members should have an opportunity to vote for a Labour candidate. Uh, and if, if we don't put one up, that's being unfair to them and we're depriving them of that choice. Uh, so possibly uh, the question could be, and you'll have to obviously ask Ed, is should Ed have stood against the Labour Party or a Labour candidate? That's a question obviously only he can answer. Uh, but let's say if I were to resign as a Labour Party member and I stood as an independent, the Labour Party will still stand a candidate against me because the Labour Party is bigger than any one individual. So we were right to have a candidate in uh, Ravensthorpe. Uh, had, had Ed not have stood, maybe things would have been different, but it's his democratic right to stand. Uh, so we just have to move on. You stated after the election that you'd, quote, shared my vision with the other parties and they know what a Labour-controlled administration would do. Why did the idea of a so-called rainbow coalition not come to fruition? We talked and we talked and we were nearly there. The challenge was we've got the Liberal Democrats and the Green Party and then you've got the Labour Party and then you've got four independent councillors uh, who are Peterborough first and they really are four independent councillors when you start working with them, they think independently. So really you've got three main parties plus a fourth one where you've got four individuals so you're working with seven different parties that would have made it extremely difficult to uh, form any form of coalition with a long-term vision so we talked a lot we were nearly there i think had we've had three separate parties it might have worked better but with the four independents being truly independent and I fully respect that because I like John Fox, uh, Judy, Steve Lynn and Chris Harper but because they're all independent every time I wanted to get something through I'd have to speak to the Lib Dems, the Greens and then four other people uh, after obviously having spoken to my group and that would have mean things would have worked really really slowly uh, and I don't think that would have been good for the people of Peterborough. So looking forward to the elections next year, uh, under the current electoral system, um, there are a difficult set of seats for the Labour Party. Uh, you've got uh, eight defences out of the, the 20 that are up. Even if you were to somehow manage to gain all six Conservative seats, which I think is unlikely with some of the ones that are up, that would only leave you as the largest party by one seat and still seven seats short of a majority. What would be a positive result for you coming out of that election? I think 2023 is our hardest year. Uh, 2024 will be our biggest opportunity, by the way, and we might talk about that later because the, the way that the system works may change from thirds to all-outs. Uh, but coming in this coming May, I think if we can gain two to three seats, we would do well, especially because we're defending eight. Do we have the ability to do that? Yes, we do. We've had some challenges in, in, in the last two years, but once... Uh, our campaigning machine is up and running. Uh, we campaigned really well, but because of COVID, uh, things s slowed down. Then we had other challenges within the local party, which are well documented in, in the media. Uh, and that meant we weren't able to campaign as well as we do uh, this year and last year. And I, I'm confident that's going to change in 2023. So two or three seats and I'd be happy. To stand any sort of form or any uh, chance of being able to form an administration in 2023, you're going to have to enter into some kind of pact with the Lib Dems or the Greens, aren't you? If you mean pact as an election pact, where we don't stand candidates in particular wards, uh, the Labour Party and the NEC uh, do not allow us to do that. 
So that's not going to happen. What will happen is they'll stand their candidates, we'll stand our candidates in all wards, and you'll see that over the last two or three elections and, uh, and in the past. And if we get to a stage where either we win or they win, uh, I think uh, some kind of a coalition is highly likely because, uh, as you've said, with the numbers as they are, uh, to get to 31 will take us a number of years. Uh, but we work incredibly well with the Liberal Democrats and the Green Party, and we have a lot in common, uh, especially in, in Peterborough. Uh, so we're not going to enter into a pact, but uh, after the election, we will have a conversation if we can get to 31 or more councillors. Um, now, you, you mentioned there that there is going to be a review taking place into whether Peterborough should move to having a full uh, election uh, number of councillors up every four years rather than the current system of, of a third every other year. Um, would that help you as a party? I think it helps all of us. So I started having this conversation with the former finance uh, director, uh, a chap by the name of Pete Carpenter. Uh, and through the work that he did for me, we established uh, the council would save around about 250 to 300,000 pounds uh, if we had elections once every four years as opposed to uh, in thirds and then a fourth fallow year. And of course, with that, you'd have some by-elections in that four-year period. So let's say the net saving is 200,000 pounds. Uh, so money is part of the conversation and 200 grand is quite significant, especially where we are right now with our financial challenges. But the main reason why I've always been in favour of all outs uh, is that if you're in power and you know in 12 months time there's an election, you're always going to think short term, as in if we do something and the voters don't like it, uh, then they're going to vote us out. So you never make long term choices. And that's part of the problem of why Peterborough, I think, is where it is financially, because we've always been very short-termist. Having all-outs, you've got four years, then the first two years, for example, you can make those big choices of how you're going to change Peterborough and improve it. Then the following two years, you can then implement it without worrying about an election being around the corner. Now, that's not how it should work. I think politicians need to be bold and brave. And they, I mean, for a year... I'm going to do what I believe people want and what's right for Peterborough. But unfortunately, that's not how politics works. So I think All Out is a fantastic idea. Will it help us? I think in 2024, uh, we are going to win more seats, especially with the way that we're focused on and targeted now. If we have a general election, uh, I think we'll win even more seats. And I think if it's All Out, that will also help us. Now, I was discussing voting uh, in Peterborough with a resident called Rachel, who told me that she didn't bother to vote in May because promises keep being made and they're not kept. Uh, do you think that's a fair view? And do you think changing to a, an all-out model would help more people engage uh, and ultimately result in an increase in turnout? I haven't looked into detail in terms of turnout. So uh, in Parkwood, where I'm a councillor, I think on average, the turnout's between 45 to 50%, which is probably the highest uh, anywhere in Peterborough. Uh, and Rachel's right. Uh, it's all too often politicians promise jam tomorrow, but it never happens. Whether they're, they're saying we're, we're going to introduce low taxes or something else. I think it's high time pol politicians started uh, doing what they said they would do. Uh, and people like Rachel, who I meet on a regular basis, 
uh, are absolutely right that most politicians are a letdown uh, and we need to win back the trust of the people and that's when people will start coming out to vote because most people who don't vote because if you look at the I think the average turnout in Peterborough across all the wards is probably I don't know 25% maybe 30% yeah the last election it was 30% 30% so the majority don't vote And, and the reason why they don't vote is because they don't trust politicians because we've made it really easy now you can have a postal vote comes to your house okay you sign it post it back you don't have to go to some polling station park your car there or if you don't have a car make your way there or grab a lift or, a, or a, a bus or a taxi or however you get to the polling station and wait around for half an hour if it's busy all of that stuff's finished uh, but until we win back the trust of the people uh, i think that kind of turnout uh, is going to continue the list uh, for Labour candidate for Peterborough at the next general election is said to include Andrew Pakes, Deputy General Secretary of Prospect Union, uh, Nashalba Khan, a councillor in Gillingham, and Dave Roundtree, the drummer of the band Blur and a former councillor on Norfolk County Council. Do we not have any outstanding local candidates that could take that on? We had a number of local people who applied. Uh, and Did you? I did, I did, uh, alongside some of the high-profile local uh, councillors and former and, and a former MP, and, and the Labour Party took a particular stance uh, to bring in fresh faces, uh, and I guess most of us would probably be disappointed with that. But that, that's just politics. Sometimes things go your way. Sometimes things don't go your way. I'm here to serve. So whether Andrew gets it or Dave or Noshaba, I think they'll be a fantastic candidate, and all three of them have the ability to beat Paul Bristow, which is really important. Do you think Lisa Forbes was right that her bid to stand again was blocked by factionalism? That's an opinion Lisa has. Uh, so it's hard for me to answer that because I've not encountered that. Uh, so I've, I've always been of the opinion uh, that no matter who the leader of the Labour Party is, we must always support them. Uh, so, and I'm going back many, many years now, and we had, or more recently, Ed Miliband was a leader, I supported him. Then Jeremy came in, I supported him. Keir Starmer's in now, I'm supporting him because I believe it's the democratic right of the members to choose their leader. It's not for people like me to say he's good or she's good or they're no good. In terms of if Lisa feels that she's on the wrong side of the party, uh, I don't know because I've not spoken to her. Uh, but this happens all the time, and, so, and it's been happening for a long time. Okay, uh, happens in, in all parties. By the way, it happens in the Conservative Party, Labour Party. I'm sure it had happened in the Liberal Democrats to some extent. Uh, but I think if you work hard uh, and you support the direction of the party, uh, sometimes things work your way, and sometimes things don't work your way. And I'm sorry, Lisa feels that way because uh, she was a, a good MP, she was a good councillor. I've known her for a long time and I'm hoping you know, after uh, some time uh, she'll have the opportunity to think about things, reflect uh, and at heart uh, she is a soci- socialist, uh, she believes in the labour values so I'm sure we will, he, she and I will be cam- together campaigning for the next parliamentary candidate to make sure that uh, L- Labour has an MP in Peterborough in 2024 or whenever we have the next general election.
In your 2021 manifesto, you describe Peterborough as, quote, a shabby, neglected, run-down, deserted city. We regularly feature on worst place to live lists. Why do you think that is and how do we combat it? I think there's a whole host of reasons for that. Uh, the first one is lack of investment. Uh, so if you go into any city the size of Peterborough, let's compare Stoke on Trent, okay? Uh, and I always talk about having certain community assets, well, city assets, uh, which make you into a thriving place. Uh, Peterborough doesn't really have any of those things, uh, be it a big theatre, some big conference centre, for example, a, a university, although obviously that's coming. Uh, and I think it's, to some extent, or a great extent, in fact, uh, the fault of successive leaders who've not been able to have a clear direction on where to take Peterborough as a city. So right now we're in a place, generally speaking, where we have a low-wage, low-skill economy. Uh, and most people, not all, in fact, I say most, quite a few people uh, work in call centres, retail, distribution centres, uh, which are low-paid jobs. Uh, and those businesses and that those sectors have a place. And I think Peterborough uh, was, I don't remember the exact number, but let's just use an example, was somewhere like 35th or 40th in the country for distribution and warehousing 15 odd years ago. Uh, and now I think it's in, in the top five. Now, I don't have a problem with those sectors, by the way, but if it means that our w workforce is low-skilled and it's low-wage economy, that isn't good for the people of Peterborough. So I strongly believe that we, we ought to be a high-skills, high-growth, uh, high-wage economy. We have the opportunity to do that. We're well-placed. Uh, we've got fantastic infrastructure in terms of uh, connectivity, we can do more with that. I mean, back in 2015, I think we, we won an award for being a leading smart city. Since then, we've not done much with it. If we have, we keep it very quiet. And there's a, there's a whole opportunity. And if you look at Sunderland, for example, that was the local government uh, association conference in Harrogate the week before last. And I've been talking about being a truly smart city for since I became leader in, in 2018. It's documented in the Peter Telegraph and uh, other uh, media outlets. Uh, if we focus on that and move forward with that, I think that will be able to enable us to have a very strong local economy. And the university can complement that. You can then attract businesses. I think we've got best... When I last checked, I think we had around about 500 businesses in the digital space. That's probably increased now. because I checked about 12, 18 months ago. Uh, in a, if we expand, extend on that, uh, we have a huge opportunity uh, to attract bigger businesses. So I would say, why can't Microsoft have a satellite office here? Why can't we have Google, YouTube, some of the other bigger players having an office here when they're 45 minutes away from uh, King's Cross. The average price uh, per square foot to rent space in London, when I last checked, I think £77 or something like that. 
The average price per square foot in Peterborough is £13. Significant saving. If you then have a university which churns out huge talent uh, and you can say to large employers, because one of the biggest challenges large employers have when I talk to them is finding the right type of personnel and then obviously hiring and then keeping them on board, so recruiting and retaining. But if you can say we've got fantastic young graduates coming out and you, they can enter your grad scheme, come to Peterborough, that's a big tick in the box. Because where we are right now, when people graduate from Peterborough, they'll be looking around and if they can't find the right jobs here, what will they do? They'll go elsewhere. Yet, if you look at most other university cities, when people graduate, a certain percentage end up staying there because they have the opportunity. So the university is fantastic. I'm a big advocate. But we need to link that with skills and also opportunity. And that's when I think Peter will start becoming a better place. The latest census data has just been released and shows that Peterborough has seen its population increase by 30,000 people in the last 10 years. This trend is unlikely to change over the next 10 years with plans for 5,000 new houses at Great Haddon, a number of developments around the city and, as you're saying there, up to 12,500 students at the university as it continues to grow. With people already struggling to get access to a doctor, an NHS dentist and other vital services, how can these issues be made better rather than continue to get worse? I think it's about investment. So if you're, if the, I mean, the UK or is growing as a country, so not just us in Peterborough here, uh, and I don't know how Peterborough compares with some of the other cities our size, because I've not seen uh, those figures for the other cities I, I have for Peterborough. So it's about having the right infrastructure in place. It's, how, it's, it's making the right investment to make sure uh, the NHS waiting lists are shorter, to make sure that we're training and recruiting more doctors, dentists, nurses, etc. Uh, and I think this is, it's been a lack of investment. So you've got the same, let's say you've got the same number of doctors, for example, but you've increased the capacity by, by 30%. But going to any of the business, so let's talk about my business. I've got the same number of personnel, and if I in increase the number of clients I have by 30%, they can't cope. There's no way they're gonna cope. So I've got to hire more people. I need to buy larger premises, invest more in IT infrastructure, in software, uh, in systems and processes. So I think it's a lack of investment uh, which has caused part of this problem. And at least uh, rather than saying, okay, uh, how do we fix it? I think some people are buying into the narrative as we've got too many people here. I think people are good, growth is good, but with growth has to come investment. And the government have tried that uh, with a levelling up agenda. I think that hasn't worked. Uh, and th then we need to have a fresh start and we need to change that. Uh, and if we invest in social services, uh, in uh, other parts uh, of the city and the country, I think uh, we can address these problems. Uh, in the last few years, we've seen a number of city centre residential developments with Bayard Place, Clifton House, which is the former job centre site, uh, Fletton Keys, now the former Solstice site. The latest we're seeing is an application to change the use of the first floor retail support units in the Riverside Arcade. How do we stop the city centre from just becoming another residential estate with a few restaurants? I think about this a lot. 
and I think as you pointed out at the start when you introduced me, I have a keen interest in, in the world of property uh, and my practice, accounting practice, specializes in working with property investors. The challenge we have is attitudes and behaviors are changing. So when I talk to people uh, across the city, a certain number will have an opinion about online businesses, Amazon and the like, uh, about how things aren't how they used to be back in the 70s and 80s and how you used to go into Queensgate and it used to be full and everybody used to get out. Uh, I say, okay, fine, but do you buy from Amazon? Oh, yes, all the time. Well, you're saying that's bad f bad for us, but you're giving your money to Amazon, so you're not going into town or the local shops and local businesses and giving them your money. So what do you expect to happen? So I think t if, if you try and stop something uh, which is m moving, it's incredibly difficult. And I think the role of government, to some extent, is to ob uh, obviously uh, influence uh, behavior. Okay, and we do that by incentivizing, but also possibly penalizing where it's right. Uh, but another role of both local and central government is to see where the trends are going and then to be able to navigate around it and be flexible. Uh, so I think to stop shops in the town centre from being developed would be short-sighted. What we ought to do is, I believe, allow, let's say, the upper floors to be converted because there is a need for housing, okay, from the numbers that you shared earlier. But the ground floor, or at least the ground floor and the first floor, should be kept commercial. Alongside that, we have a second part of the conversation, which is how do we support those businesses to continue? Uh, because businesses tell me that they struggle to pay business rates. So I think that whole uh, area needs uh, a review on how, how we support them. And then maybe looking at, okay, what do we do to make the field a bit more level in terms of, at the moment, online businesses have a competitive advantage, their costs are lower. So they'll have a distribution center somewhere 30 miles out of town, for example, or 20 miles out of town, uh, where their rent's less, their rates are lower, and someone sat in the, in the town centre and the way that the rating system works is they might be paying more rates. Uh, but I, th I don't think we're going to be able to stop uh, individuals and businesses developing the town centre or any, any town centre. It's about working with them to say, OK, the trend is changing. How do we make sure we're ahead of it? That's my personal view. Now, there have been two fairly major stories <clears throat> within Peterborough over the last sort of few months. Um, in April, a council spokesman, uh, spokesperson stated that, quote, to make St George's hydrotherapy pools safe, uh, sale ready and make necessary structural changes to help wait school, the council would be required to spend between 70 and £100,000 on various works. Ranjith Mahmani, who had agreed to buy the site, stated that he'd agreed a figure of 40000 with the council uh, that would need to be paid before the site was transferred over to him. This month, Councillor Steve Allen stated that the cost to reopen the facility would be 280000 Is there any reasoning behind these sort of spiralling costs, other than to just shut it? I'm pleased you've asked that question, uh, because uh, there's a cabinet meeting this morning 
and I went there to make a representation alongside John Fox, uh, who's a counsellor in Warrington, and Karen Oldale, who, uh, who's involved with the hydrotherapy pool. And there was a, a number of questions that I asked, and in the report, uh, they shared initial numbers of 30,000 to 70,000. So, 30, sorry, 30,000 to 100,000, I think it was, uh, for the costs. Uh, but it, it sta stated two things in, in, in that report. One was that the price of the property was heavily discounted uh, to take into account the fact that Ranji would be making a significant, uh, six-figure sum, by the way, investment in the building. And uh, also that the, whether it's 30,000 or 100,000, would depend on if Ranjit was doing any extension. So really, and this is a question that I asked uh, the cabinet and uh, council officers, I said if Ranjit isn't or wasn't doing an extension, that means the cost to the council would be nearer 30,000 as opposed to 100,000. Uh, and at, in a roundabout way, the officer agreed with that and said if there were no extension, then the cost would be lower. So that's the real figure, I'd say somewhere near 30,000. Coming on to the 278,000, uh, that figure uh, I challenged again this morning and I was told this is if the council were to run the facility themselves. So we're not comparing apples to apples here, we're comparing apples to bananas or apples and to oranges. Nobody wants the council to run that facility. We're saying give it to somebody else and those costs they've given are well out of kilter. So one moment you're telling me it cost 30,000, let's say 18 months, two years ago. Now you're saying with all the things that have changed in terms of uh, lack of supplies, uh, in terms of cost going up, the, the cost's gone up 900% to 278,000 pounds. It doesn't work. So I think, I'm, I'm going to be frank with you, I think some of those numbers have been skewed to present a particular argument to support a particular narrative. Uh, and, and it's unfortunate that this morning the cabinet decided to shut down the pool for good. I think that's extremely short-sighted, looking at the economic benefits, looking at the health benefits, looking at the community benefits uh, that that pool gives uh, to people in and uh, around Peterborough is huge. Now somewhere, somehow, someone will have to pick up that cost. I'm going to tell you who it's going to be, by the way apart from family members who have to suffer, uh, it's going to be, number one, NHS, because people will rely on the NHS because they haven't gone anywhere else to go. That means a higher burden. And secondly, they'll be coming back to the council with this adult social care or something else. So the law of unintended consequences means we saved 30,000 or thereabouts, and it's going to cost us a lot more. Interestingly, by the way, uh, in that report, it said if we sell off this part of that estate or, or property, uh, the whole thing would be uh, devalued or, or it, it would lose value. And I pointed out to the officers and then the cabinet that they've got that wrong. Because if you have a parcel of land, generally speaking, uh, and let's say you can break it down into 10 different plots, if you sell it as one big plot or one piece of land, you'll get less money for it. If you break it down into 10 or 12 different plots, you'll get more money per individual plot collectively. Uh, so breaking things up and selling them usually 
uh, in the world of property earns you more money than selling something as a parcel or a block. And there are many other shortcomings in, in that particular report which I've pointed out uh, today. I'm happy to cover that uh, if there's time. I was going to say, I'm, I'm conscious of time. We are coming towards the end of it and there are a couple of things I want to, to ask you about. Um, do you feel that every option and avenue was explored before the decision was made to cut down the oak tree in Breton? Um, and would you back Councillor Sandford's call for a full inquiry into what took place? I think Nick's absolutely right. Uh, and Nick has more authority on trees on Peter City Council than anybody else. And I know Nick pretty well. And when he was the leader of the Liberal Democrats, we used to talk regularly and we, we worked w- well together. Uh, so I'm, I'm not embarrassed or ashamed to admit, uh, admit uh, if I want to talk about trees, the first person I'll call up is Nick Sanford because uh, he, he works with the Woodland Trust, he understands it. The problem we have uh, with that whole scenario is a certain number of years or decades ago, the council granted planning for those houses to be built. And at that time, the council should have been sharper and smarter in terms of having certain planning conditions, okay, with the structure of those houses and, and the foundations. Now, we got that wrong, and today we penalise a 600-year-old tree okay, for making the wrong choice as opposed to making amends. So I, I don't think that tree should have come down, and I don't personally think uh, planting another, another 10, 50, 100, or 500 trees compensates for that one tree looking at the, at the tree's history. So that's another example of how uh, the council got this wrong. So just coming towards the end, um, I've got some quick-fire questions that I'd like to throw at you. Um, local resident Darren asks, the sale of petrol and diesel vehicles is due to be banned from 2030. According to ZapMap, Peterborough has 64 public electric charging points. Do you think we're anywhere near ready being for that? Nowhere near ready. Nowhere near ready. So we need to invest more money in those charging points to make it more accessible. Uh, Duncan on Facebook asked, uh, why does Peterborough have so many councillors? Could we not achieve the same results with a third less? I couldn't answer that question simply because we'd have to see with a third less how we get on. But generally speaking, most wards have three councillors. Uh, and generally speaking, you have between four to 6,000 homes. Uh, so to manage that many people or to look after that many people would be extremely difficult for one or two people to do. So. It's, some, it's a question worth asking, but you can only really answer the question if you try it. Duncan also asks, what's the point of asking residents for consultations on planned developments when people's views are just ignored? I think that that's a tough one. I agree with Duncan, by the way. There are certain consultations we do, and then it appears as though we've not listened to what people have said. So to answer Duncan's question, the first thing I'd say is, I would like and I want to see more people getting involved because when we have 20 people responding, that doesn't give us a, a strong argument or a case. When we have 500 or 1,000 people responding, that gives us a better indication of how the city feels. Uh, but so I think engagement is important, but when those people do engage, uh, then we ought to listen to them. And it depends what Duncan is talking about. So if we're talking from a purely planning point of view, of course, people, and if you're talking about the planning committee or the planning department, people are allowed to have a say. But if they don't have a particular planning issue, as in, I don't like this particular development just because I don't like it, or I think it's too 
big uh, or I don't think it ought to be here because I live around the corner those aren't planning uh, objections those are personal objections you have towards a particular project so as long as you can come up with plausible pragmatic reasons I find that the planning committee and planning department listen widely I think we can do better if you had control of the council from tomorrow what are the first three changes you'd make the first one that I would make is have a very clear direction on what Peterborough stands for and how Peterborough will look in the next 10 to 20 years. So I would do 3, 5, 10, 20. So I have a very clear vision and direction. The second thing I would do uh, is start a plan and a program uh, to start building council-owned homes. Uh, I think that's well overdue. Uh, and with so many people on the council register, people pe becoming homeless, people sleeping rough, although rough sleeping slightly different, by the way, uh, but we need to build our own homes. And the third thing is I would work on building the trust of people so that people respect and believe in the council more. And those are my first three things. Now, finally, um, what's one place within your ward that you would recommend to the Peterborough, the people of Peterborough to visit? That's an easy one for me, by the way, simply because uh, I live around the corner from the place. It's Central Park. It's a beautiful place. There's the Willow Cafe there. Uh, we have lots of different events over the year. There's plenty of green space. It's family-friendly, child-friendly. Uh, so I would urge everybody to visit Central Park if they haven't been there before. Councillor Nawaz, thanks for your time today. Pleasure. And that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks to Councillor Nawaz for joining us. You can follow him on Twitter at ShazNawaz1. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at PoliticsPBORO. Please let us know what you thought of the episode. We also have a Politics of Peterborough discussion group on Facebook where you can discuss and debate any of the topics raised in this episode with other listeners. If you have any suggestions as to who you'd like to hear on the show or any questions you'd like us to put to our guest, you can email us at politics.peterborough at hotmail.com. The Politics of Peterborough was created, hosted and edited by me. Production and audio recording by Darren Church. We'll see you next time.